Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 to 32, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The King Demands Repentance. In answer to the question, what does Jesus want? Well, the answer is not hard to come by. Jesus wants that all people repent, turn from their sins, and turn to him for forgiveness, reconciliation with the Father, and eternal life. That's not hard to understand. It's very hard, however, to digest. So why turn to him? I mean, why not turn to someone else? I mean, why this exclusivity? Are there not others who are equally able to hear our confession? And more than that, just who does Jesus think he is? There's an incident in the life of Jesus that highlights this matter. It's found in Luke chapter 5, when the friends of a paralyzed man lowered him on a mat, supported by ropes from the ceiling, down in front of Jesus. And in response, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you. And in response, the Jewish religious leaders almost lost it. No one, they say, can forgive sins except God alone. Well, then, in order to demonstrate that he has the power to forgive sins, he asks them a question. What do you think is easier, to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to say to this paralyzed person lying on a mat, rise up, take up your mat, and go home, but that you might believe that I have authority on earth to forgive sins? He says to the man, rise and walk. Well, now it's a question, isn't it, of authority. If a man in another car demands I pull over and let him pass, I might just not do that. But if that man is a police officer, yep, I will. It's a matter of authority. Again, someone suggests I take drugs. I'll most definitely say no, but if that person is my medical doctor, has been trained in a recognized medical school, and having, out of his or her training, accurately diagnosed my condition, as well as being fully aware of the benefits of the drugs that are being offered me, of course I'm going to take that drug. It's a matter of recognized authority. And so it's no small matter to ask a person to show their authority to do what they do. So let's begin reading our text today, Matthew 21, verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Well, Jesus is back in the temple and by now, the chaos that he's created is beginning to, as we say, suck all the oxygen out of the room. I mean, whatever else is happening in Jerusalem, it's now being overshadowed by the question of what Jesus is going to do next. So let's review what he's already done. First, it's during Passover. He's entered into Jerusalem on a donkey that no one has ever ridden. And he's done that deliberately to fulfill the messianic prophecy of Zechariah 9, verse 9. And the crowd's shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. That's a messianic title. The city is in an uproar. There seems to be no stopping the momentum that Jesus has on his side. So on the next day, he throws the money changers out of the temple and he announces that the temple is his house. My house, he says, will be a house of prayer. That's a claim of messianic office. He claims the temple as his own and it would be subject to him. In essence, we have, you know, in the first act, he acts like a king riding into Jerusalem. And the second act, he acts like a prophet condemning the wickedness that's happening in the temple, as well as he's acting like the high priest of the temple, ordering what might happen there. 
but as we've seen in the morning of that day, he's also cursed the fig tree. And most Bible teachers believe that he was cursing Israel, but I believe that Jesus never cursed Israel. Rather, I've argued that he was cursing the temple in which he declares an end to the temple. And no doubt that action, even though it was done in the presence only of the disciples by then, already had been told in Jerusalem exactly what did he mean by cursing the fig tree? What has this man cursed? Are we all in trouble? And so let's agree that the action of Jesus is so intense and Jerusalem is in uproar as well. There are many who are expecting the outbreak of the kingdom of God. And there can be no doubt about the fact that the religious teachers are on their heels. And so as they're trying to gain their footing, it's now the next day, it's Tuesday. Jesus is back and before he gets a chance to direct the action of that day, the religious teachers are intent on seizing the action of the day. By what authority, they ask, are you doing these things? And the these things, well, that's a reference to Sunday and Monday. It's also included in the fact that Jesus has been healing people in the temple. The children have taken up the the chant, Hosanna to the son of David, and instead of shutting them down, Jesus is encouraging them. These things, these, these things of the last two days, these disruptive things, depending on your perspective, according to the religious teachers, it's disruptive, but it demands an accounting. Exactly who authorized all of this? Who gave you this authority? Now, we might say in one sense, Jesus has already showcased his authority. You know, when he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, he was quoting Isaiah 56, verse 7. See, the religious leaders in their arrangements of the sale of merchandise in the temple and taking away the court from the Gentiles, giving the Gentiles no place for worship. You know, the house of prayer for all nations had been reduced to a den of robbers, and the religious teachers who arranged that were talking about authority. I mean, who gave them the authority over the word of God? Indeed, that was the problem, wasn't it? Who has authority? I mean, think of it this way. Imagine you have leaders in your church who are encouraging adultery or encouraging open heresy. Now, they claim we're authorized leaders of this church. Well, a response to them should be, once you move beyond the scripture, you've moved out of the realm of authority. See, it's like a doctor ignoring the best scientific and medical direction, simply prescribing whatever he wants. Now, he might say, look, I have a medical certificate and I have authority, therefore, but hopefully the College of Physicians and Surgeons are going to revoke his license or at least suspend it. See, authority is invested in acting according to the standards of the governing body who grants the authority. In the case of religious leaders, authority isn't absolute. It has to be in obedience to God. See, I know in our day, there are well-known religious leaders who seem to think that their authority is equal to that of God. Some of them even utter prophecies that justify their evil actions. And the tragic thing is that there are numerous gullible followers who gladly suspend any judgment under the misguided assumption that the anointing of God rests on this leader. What a tragedy. The anointing of God isn't a feeling. The anointing of God is not how many followers someone has or how excited and how spiritual everyone feels around them. I mean, those misguided assumptions have led to spiritual abuse. They've ruined the lives of millions. The anointing of God, the authority of God, can't be demonstrated when there's variance to the written scriptures, the Bible, the 66 books. 
That's a declaration of the nature and purposes of God. Don't talk about authority if the scriptures are contradicted or violated. Well, nonetheless, the religious teachers are completely ignorant of that. They want to stop Jesus, and they want to put him on his heels and answer their accusations, and they want to turn the momentum around. You justify yourself, they demand. You produce your credentials for turning Jerusalem and the temple into chaos. And after you've given whatever credentials you care to produce, it will be up to us to examine them and we'll pronounce a judgment that these credentials are no credentials at all. And then we can tell the crowd that you are acting on your own authority. And with that, we're going to begin to turn the crowd in our favor. But of course, even asking the question, demanding he give his credentials. That already changes the field of play. They think they have him now. So let's continue to read Matthew 21, 23 to 27. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, Jesus' response is nothing short of brilliant, and here's why. John the Baptist was a man whom the crowd revered. Jesus knew that the chief priests and the elders detested him. But when John became a martyr, he sealed his status among the people, great prophet of God who prophesied the coming of the Messiah. The chief priests and elders are in a dilemma. If they agree that John received authority from God, then Jesus will have them on their heels. Why have you not obeyed his voice? Why didn't you repent so that this fiasco in the temple wouldn't continue? Oh, they mustn't say that. But if they say he had no authority from God, well, then the crowd would turn on them. No more listening to the religious teachers. Who needs their talk anyway? You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom, well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future. So call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315. Or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult. Jesus was clearly pushing the chief priests and elders into a corner. He's told them he'll answer their questions just as soon as they answer his. And his question was a deeply troubling question for no matter how they answered, these men would be exposed. 
stop and consider their dilemma. When religious leaders have authority that derives its authority from political power structures or the authority bestowed on them by other people of power, eventually it will be seen for what it is. And for this reason, I feel that, let's say, state churches, they've got it all wrong. Don't look to your nation or to any nation to bestow authority on a church. All of that is the authority of the state, and it's going to cease to exist one day. It was in the Middle Ages, the authority of the state conferred power on the church. And even though the Reformation challenged what the Roman church taught, that it wasn't scriptural, You know, the reformers themselves didn't yet understand that they need to trend their relationship from the state. We need to come to terms with that. If we want to know what God demands of a man or woman, don't ask the state. Don't ask the culture in which we live. You know, the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age, don't ask that. You know, all these things are transitory. You need a word from God, not connected to the age in which you live or the country in which you're a citizen. Those things don't help. See, the chief priests and elders have finally found an answer that will get them out of the dilemma. They say, we don't know. We don't know where John's authority came from and Jesus was ready for that. If you have no ability to judge so significant a person as John, then what use is it to present my credentials to you by your own testimony? you've shown you're incapable of forming a judgment. Well, no doubt, the crowd watching is stunned. Jesus has just humiliated the leading religious leaders of the nation. They thought they had him on his heels, and now they have egg on their face, powerful leaders well-connected to the Roman authorities, claiming to represent the faith of Israel, left with nothing to say to this prophet of Galilee. He's not backed down. Indeed, he has seen them backing down. But Jesus is not going to end with that. Since we're speaking about spiritual authority, he's got more to say. Matthew 21, 28 to 31. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. See, Jesus is the man who often teaches telling stories, parables. And in a great many of his parables, there is a man of authority. And there are those who must submit to that authority. Sometimes it's the story of a king and his subjects. You know, in the parable right after this one, we're going to consider that tomorrow, Jesus tells the story of the master of a house and the tenants who lease land from him. See, in each of these stories, the man of authority represents God. And the parables that Jesus tells are the kind of parables that people can easily imagine, for the events he describes could easily have happened in their culture. This time, Jesus tells the story of a father with two sons. In the ancient world, unlike ours, fathers had a great deal of authority over their children. You see, the ancients reasoned, well, after all, the father gave life to his children. On that basis, the children owe the father allegiance. And furthermore, in this parable, the father owns a vineyard. Now, he might have been a wealthy father, but whether he was wealthy or not, there can be no doubt that the vineyard sustains the family. It's put bread in the mouths of his two sons. It's put clothes on their back, everything else they have. See, the ancients reasoned on the basis of all of that, the sons, they're required to do the bidding of the father. See, often when reading a parable, we wonder who the various characters are. 
And it must be said that in a great many parables that Jesus told, you know, we're not supposed to examine every detail. You know, instead, you know, the parables make one point and leave it at that. But I think this parable is an exception. I think the identity of these two sons is so important here. But before we try to identify them, let's see if we can retell the story. One son, when being told to work the vineyard for the day, simply refused. No reason is given. Perhaps he's had previous plans. Perhaps he's tired of working for his dad. Doesn't really matter the reasons. He simply refuses. And yet somewhere along the way, although the day has begun in disobedience, the son repents. Again, we're not told the reason for this change of heart. It might have been that he's thought about his obligations to his father, to his family, and he's come to terms with his own rebellion. But after openly rejecting the authority of his father, he repents and does what's expected of him. The second son is compliant. There was a great social stigma on those who refused to obey their fathers. And there are also biblical reasons for obeying the father. Obedience to father and mother, that's commanded in the law. And Proverbs 13 verse 1 says, the wise son hears his father's instructions. That is, wisdom is learned by complying to the demands of the father. And so given that refusing the father leads to public disgrace, the second son immediately complies. I suppose we could say he doesn't just have the courage to do what the first son did. But after he's left the father's presence, the things that he's commanded to do, that really bugs him now. He's, he's tired of his father's commands. He wants to have a life apart from his father. He simply isn't going to do it. And of course, Jesus is bringing the story to a conclusion. Which of these two sons did the will of his father? And of course, that's not hard to answer. The first son did, the second son didn't. And at this point in time, Jesus declares who the two sons are. The second son, who didn't do the will of father, is the hypocritical son, the one who talked a good game, but who had no performance, the one who was concerned about social appearances, but his heart was in disobedience. That son is the religious teachers of Israel, the chief priests, the elders, the members of the Sanhedrin. So who's the other son? Well, the one who is pleasing to the father, the one who brought the light to his father. And if you have been there, to let Jesus explain who the first son was, you could have heard the gasp. The first son is represented by, well, tax collectors and prostitutes. What? Tax collectors and prostitutes? Well, tax collectors in that day, they were Jews. They were Jews who lived in the communities where they collected taxes. But they were Jews who were traitors, both to Israel and to God. They had sold their birthright and made a deal with the Roman authorities. See, people in that day hid their hard-earned money from oppressive taxation, and the Romans couldn't figure out who was doing it. So they hired turncoats among the Jews to betray their own countrymen. In return, the Romans made them rich. I think it's no small thing that the man who records this conversation in the temple is Matthew, who himself was once a tax collector. Matthew 9, verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. See, Matthew would most likely have occupied a tax booth on a major trade route that passed by the town of Capernaum, the town where Jesus lived, the town where Jesus had his base of operations. And from the road outside of Capernaum, Matthew would levy taxes from people on trade routes as well as from the citizens of Capernaum. Everyone knew who Matthew was. But then Jesus came by his tax booth on that day, 
and his words were simple, follow me. And Matthew knew what it meant. Leave your tax booth, quit your job, repent of everything you've been doing, and accept my call on your life. You follow me, be obedient to me. It's what Matthew did. Indeed, that very night, Matthew had Jesus to his house, and he invited his friends, other tax collectors just like them, along with the most notorious sinners in the region. Many of them would have repented that very night. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests, the elders of the nation, the ones who had promised loyalty and fidelity to God from the start, they had desecrated God's temple and they had no intention of repentance and faith. And with that, Jesus speaks directly to the religious authorities. Matthew 21, 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. (laughs) My dear listener, please, don't just condemn these men of the past, lest you condemn yourself along with them. Jesus is the king. He demands of you that you renounce all known sin, that you turn from your sin to him for forgiveness and reconciliation with the Father. Will you act religious and say the right words and receive all the praise from the right people? Or will you do what the Father commands of you and what Christ commands of you? Reconsider your ways, lest you fall into the error of the scribes and the teachers of the law. Oh my, do not be like one of them. Thanks for your message, John. You know, you made me think a little bit. You know, it's obvious that Jesus was highly critical of the religious leaders of the day. Is there a chance that church leaders today could fall into the same criticism? Well, I think there's always that chance. And and the reality is, within the history of the church, uh, many times uh, the clergy has uh, led the people astray. And that was especially true during the Middle Ages when the gospel had been forgotten and religious uh, rules and the power of the church, political power especially was, you know, was given a prominence over anything else so that uh, opening the way towards salvation had been lost. So I'm going to say, yeah, those words of Jesus ought to kind of redound to our day and we ought to think about what they mean. And, and, and for all of us who are, you know, who are involved in Christian leadership, let's take them to heart and remember to keep our focus on Christ and not our own power. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hey, it's Phil Calloway. I want to tell you about my newest book with Laugh Again, 12 Days of Christmas Stories. In it, I share 12 of my favorite Christmas stories to help you laugh and think about Christmas. This beautiful coffee table book includes Bible readings from the real Christmas story. It's perfect for reflection, reading around the dinner table, or sharing with kids of all ages at bedtime. And there are bonus features too. Four of my favorite stories have special QR codes that lead you to four videos where I read the story for you. 12 Days of Christmas Stories is filled with colorful illustrations, perfect for a new Christmas tradition. Finally, this book is our gift to you. Just call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca and request your free copy. Did I say free? 
I did. Merry Christmas. 